This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Verses 12 through 16 uh, continue Paul's spiritual autobiography, which he began actually back in verse 4, an autobiography he felt he needed to give to the church at Philippi, And there, beginning in verse 4, he first spoke about the past, his past, a past in which he abandoned all confidence in his own works. He abandoned all confidence in any of his religious deeds, his religious efforts. He abandoned all confidence in his Jewish pedigree, being a Hebrew of Hebrews and being a Pharisee. He abandoned all confidence in anything that he could achieve when he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when he trusted Jesus for his salvation. But quickly, quickly he says, this does not mean that he's perfect. (laughs) This does not mean that he thinks that he's arrived. That once Christ laid a hold of him on that road to Damascus and at that moment he was accredited with the righteousness of his life and he was justified before God and forgiven of his sins that somehow he was done. Or that somehow God was done with him. He says no, that's not the case. And he wants no one to conclude that he thinks he's perfect, that he's arrived. And he does that through a double denial. Verse 12. Not that I've already obtained this. Verse 13, I do not consider I've made it my own. He wants to be very clear. And most scholars think the reason he wants to be clear is that there were among them those who were beginning to teach that they they had attained some sort of perfection that came through Jewish rituals that are added to faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul does not want them thinking that that's true, nor do they want uh, these, does he want those false teachers to say, see, Paul says he's perfect too. Paul says, no, <laughs> no one is perfect in that sense. We are perfect before God in Christ, but in our, our own behavior and our own progress, we are not yet complete. And so Paul makes that clear. He shares Then he shares with the Philippians his present experience, his present outlook. And what is it? It is one of passionately pursuing a very specific goal. He's not stagnant in his Christian life. He is pressing on. He is reaching forward. And that's an athletic word, the verb there, to press. And I think most of you who have been Christians for some time, you know that Paul likes to use athletic metaphors. And he... He uh, refers to the Christian life as a race in more than one place. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, no need to turn there, but he says, verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run. (laughs) That's the Christian life. He says, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. Then he mixes the metaphor, another athletic metaphor, boxing. He says, I do not box as one who's beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Paul likes to depict, at times, the Christian life is involving strenuous work and using athletic metaphors. And he does so here in Philippians again. He uses the word to press. That verb to press means to run after or to follow after. It involves aggressive, energetic behavior. Sometimes it was used not only of a, uh, speaking of athletes, but of hunters who would follow their prey and so forth. And the present tenses of these verbs imply that this was Paul's constant attitude. He was always pressing forward, always leaning into the future. And what was he pressing after? What was he seeking with such passion? Well, you look at verse 12, you look down, he says, not that I have already 
obtain this, and we wonder, what is the this? <laughs> well, it's actually more stark in the original language. There is no object to the verb. There is no this there. It's, it literally reads, not that I've already obtained, not that I've already received. In English, we say things like, I've not arrived, and yet we, and we think, arrived where? <laughs> arrived at what? And so when we hear Paul read, that's what, uh, right, that's what he's saying. Not that I've already received or obtained. We say, what have you not obtained? And he waits, he writes a little further. And then finally he says in verse 14, I press on towards the goal. And we still say, what's the goal? He says, for the prize. And we say, well, what's the prize? And finally he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize. Here it is. Of the, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And it still leaves us saying, what in the world is that? <laughs> the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's talking about the consummation of the Christian life in the resurrection, the final transformation of his own person, and he desires that and presses after that understanding that it's not a switch that someone turns on, but he's on the way towards that. And on the way, he has a profound desire, and he tells us what this is in verses 10 and 11. He sums it up as the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, but he tells us what that looks like in this life, in this journey. Verse 10, 11, this is Paul's profound personal prayer. This is looking into the heart of this apostle. He says, that I may know him. That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. And may share his suffering. Becoming like him, even in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The culmination. Glory, you see. What does he mean by this? What's Paul say? I, I, I want to know him. We say certainly Paul knows him. Yes, he knows him. <laughs> and Paul's been a Christian some 30 years now by the time he writes this. But he, he says there's more to know. I want to know him better. I want to know him deeper. He wants an ever-deepening, ever-clearer picture and understanding who, of who the Messiah is and what he is for him and what he will be. For his people, I want to know him. How do we know him? And then the next two little phrases come together. Paul says, here's part of how we know him. Um, through the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. One of, one of the great paths towards knowing Christ better, a sacred path for every Christian, is sharing in his sufferings. And you ask, how can we share in his sufferings? By the power of his resurrection. That's how. If you doubt it, remember this man is sitting in prison when he writes it. Remember this man has been beaten, abandoned. Remember this man who writes these words is awaiting the outcome of his trial in Rome as far as we understand. And he says, I want to know him more by responding rightly to his sufferings when I share them. And I can, I can, not because I choose to, but because the power of his resurrection in my life. You say, well, what's the power of his resurrection? At this point, he's not referring to the final resurrection. The power of resurrection is God's power, God's capacity to implant or create life where there is none to create spiritual life where there's spiritual death, and to create physical life where there's physical death. If you're a Christian here today, you are a Christian because you already experienced the power of His resurrection. Spiritually speaking, He made you alive when you were dead. That's spiritual resurrection power, you see. Romans chapter 6 says that though you were dead, you've been made alive to God, you see. And so Paul says, I want to know him, and I'll know him through the power of his resurrection in my life, enabling me 
to share in his sufferings even as I'm here right now in prison. And then he says, and ultimately, ultimately, becoming like him in his death, facing my death, facing my life with that same humble submission to the Father's will. He who humbled himself to death, even to death on a cross. Paul says, I won't be like that. And so I'm pressing after that, that I might by whatever means attain to the final resurrection is what he's talking about. When Paul says that, he has no doubt that he's going to be raised from the dead. When he says by whatever means, he doesn't know when it's coming or how at that moment. Christ might raise the dead while he's still alive in prison, or he might have to die and then go to be in his presence, be raised on the last day, whenever it is. Whatever means, I want to know him through his sufferings by the power of his resurrection, become like him even in, my, in his death and my death, and then experience the resurrection, he says. That's what he's pressing after. We would sum it up as this. Paul wants an ever-deepening knowledge of Christ, and he wants to become like Christ in anticipation of the final resurrection. That's his prayer, the scary prayer to pray. If you understand what it means to share with his sufferings, but you understand this is actually God's objective not only for this apostle, but for you and for me. If we are Christians here today, if we are believers, this is the same goal for every in each one of us. It wasn't done when you, when you were justified by faith in Christ alone. It wasn't done at, at that point. That is, your transformation was not done. Your standing was forever done. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, and, and something I think we're all familiar with, for those whom he foreknew, those whom God knew before the foundation of the world and loved, those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Not just forgiven, not just adopted, not just justified. As great as all those things are, his goal is to conform you to the image of his Son, to restore what was lost in the garden, in our rebellion, and to make us into the image of his own Son, who is the perfect human being, in order that he, Jesus the Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. A human family that reflects what we were meant to reflect in the beginning, you see. That's the final goal, and that's what God is doing in your life and mine, and Paul never loses sight of that. He presses on. He wants that. And it's like saying he wants to get as far as he can in this life before that day that he leaves it in preparation for the resurrection. He wanted to be like him. And so that is, the, that is what he's pressing after, beloved. And so it must be with us. Christ laid hold of Paul, so Paul wants to lay hold of Christ. And if you are here today and Christ has laid hold of you, what I mean is if you are a genuine Christian, you were born again, you experienced the power of resurrection in your heart and life, you were made alive and you placed your faith in Jesus, he's called you in his kingdom. You were saved not only to have a new standing, to be forgiven, to be justified, to be adopted. Praise God, yes, but you were saved to be made like him, to become progressively a clearer reflection of Christ Jesus. That's the goal. And it's something we experience collectively. We grow together. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that the body grows into the likeness of the head as each part works together and functions. And we see that corporate aspect here in verse 15 when he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Let us, verse 16, let us hold true to what we have attained, you see. The, we pursue it together and we pursue it because we're genuine Christians. We've been made alive. Matthew Henry was right when he comments on this, and he says, uh, rightly so, he says, wherever there is true grace, there's a desire 
for more grace. <laughs> Wherever someone has experienced resurrection power and made alive, there's a desire to know it more, <laughs> to experience it more. And I know that our desires ebb and flow, right? And there's times when we don't press on much or don't desire much. We don't say that. But where there is true grace, there will be a desire for more grace, if only more grace to desire more grace <laughs> and to press on. As I get older, I experience new temptations. And it's really quite interesting to be self-conscious and to talk about it with my wife on our break. I said, you know, the, the temptations I had when I was in my 30s and 40s and 50s. <laughs> I go on, need I go on. <laughs> I said, They're just not the same, you know. And I start feeling myself tempted as I get older in a way that I've seen many older people be tempted who are walking with the Lord. You know what that is? One of them is this, what? Cynicism. Cynicism. Didn't all happen the way we thought it happened. Didn't see all we thought we'd see. Not everything I hoped experience didn't come about. I wouldn't have done it that way. And pretty soon you start settling into this sort of cynical spirit, you know. Your mind's always just reacting to whatever's said in a sort of cynical way, right? Pastor says, well, we're going to this and that. Oh, yeah, like that's ever going to happen here. Look at them. Told Cherry, man, I'm tempted to be more cynical. And I have to resist that. I got to press on. I have to, I have to trust that he knows what he's doing. Listen, if you're here today and you're listening to me and you are a Christian, whether you're young, a young person, or older, like me, <laughs> whether you are a newer Christian, new to the faith, or an older Christian, one who's been in the faith some time, whether you are single, whether you are married, whether you are male, whether you are female, if you are a Christian here today, Christ has laid hold of you. That's why you have faith, and he is speaking to you. And what he's saying to you today is verse 15. Think maturely. You have never going to arrive in this life. Press on. It's not done. Press on. And that's his word to every one of us here, me included. And so the, really the next question, what the sermon is about now is, is how do we press on? We, from this text, we learn four qualities of Paul in his life that I think ought to be true of every Christian to press on. And the very first one is he has this, what I'm going to call this holy discontent. That is where he, he, he has this humble dissatisfaction with where he is spiritually. I know last week I talked about the, the, the need to be content. <laughs> so fair enough, you can say that, okay? However, I was talking about something different. Psalm 131 was talking about coming to the place where you can find contentment in any circumstance by quieting your soul. This is something completely different. This is something different. This is realizing that you haven't arrived in your sanctification, in your, in your progress. That it's, 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 it's coming to that place where you can have a humble self-assessment, a humble self-awareness, and realize that you, you haven't arrived, and that's okay because no one has arrived, and not even the apostle had arrived when he was responding so well in prison. This is not a continual sort of morbid uh, introspection. Too many a Christian, I know, that just wallow in self-pity. And almost, almost ever, after every sermon, there's this, that's not me, I'm so bad, I can't be, I can't do. I, I, none of us is, much, is, is perfect. But this is not designed to squash you, to undermine you. 
It is just that honest self-assessment that comes from the mirror of God's word to show you where God wants to be at work in your life and how he's ready to be at work in your life to make you more like his son, his son. And so it's designed to motivate you to press on once you have identified where you need to grow. You know, when someone's diagnosed with a sickness, they press on to the disease, to the, uh, to the cure, to find out how can I get help, you know. And building on Paul's athletic metaphors, when someone, you know, m- misses all their foul shots in the basketball game, what, the next day they show up three hours earlier and just work on their foul shots for three hours. When a professional golfer even misses an easy putt, he, he shows up hours earlier the next day and practices putting. And we admire that in, athlete, in athletes. When a musician makes a mistake and he practices, he or she practices for hours on scales so as not to do it again, we admire that. But we tend to sometimes kind of look uh, sarcastically at people who say they're working hard in their sanctification and memorizing scripture and But that's what it is. Paul is pressing after it. And he wants to grow. Christian, don't think you've arrived. That's the danger here. Don't think ever that you've learned enough, read enough, prayed enough, memorized enough, saw enough, experienced enough to just sort of put it on cruise control for the rest of your Christian life. I'm thoroughly blessed in being a part of a multi-generational church where there's really dark hair in the room and there's this sort of mixed color in the room and then there's gray and then there's like reflector white, you know. (laughs) I'm blessed for that because there's plenty in this church who are pressing on in old age. Let them be an example for you. Blesses my heart. Encourages me. Faye Johnson, you, you bless me. I know. Well, she's looking down. There's her humility. Became a deaconess to serve here in her 80s. You're going to be 90 next month, I think, aren't you? No? No? 89? I'm not supposed to give out dates, right? And <laughs> numbers. <laughs> Ken Cook, you bless me here in your age. Sitting there with outlines and a pen in your hand, always studying. You took all these classes here. Uh, Bill Lynch, you encouraged me teaching classes in your late 70s. I won't give the number, so whatever. Yeah, there. What does Paul say? Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. There's plenty of people to keep your eye on here. And they have gray hair. And they're pressing on. And here's Paul. If anyone had the right to be a little complacent, right? If we could give, if we could give anyone a break, right? It would be Paul. In prison, he, he suffered so much. If we, we would tend to say, look, give the guy a break. Let him rest. Leave him alone. Paul won't have it. Why? Because he has, first of all, that holy discontent in his, where he is, a humble dissatisfaction as to where he is in, in his walk with Christ. So let that lead you on. The second quality is this, I'm calling it a selective amnesia. Look at verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, and then he has a couplet here, forgetting what lies behind And straining forward to what lies ahead. We'll take that first couplet. Forgetting what lies behind. He says that's key to my ability to press forward. Is to forget what lies behind. Now what's Paul mean? Does he mean. Does he actually mean that he's capable of forgetting everything that happened. From yesterday on backwards. Absolutely not. Paul doesn't mean he forgets everything. He he never forgot the grace of God that got him. That found him. That's not at all what Paul means. What Paul means is this. This is his selective amnesia. He says, I, what he means is, I do not dwell on anything in my past that will hinder my pursuit of Christ in the present. 
I will not dwell on anything from my past, good or bad, sins or achievements, that will in any way hinder my capacity to press on for Christ right now in the present. That's what Paul means. Paul had a lot to look back on, didn't he? Just like you and me. He would not dwell on his past failures. He would not dwell even on his achievements, not only as a Pharisee, but not dwell on his past achievements as a Christian. Paul had accomplished much, did he not? Again, we'd say, give the man a break. This is a guy who went on three missionary journeys. Look at the churches that he's planted. But he won't rest on that. He won't sit on his laurels from the past. And so that's what he means. I won't let dwelling on the past hinder my desire, my passion for moving forward. Looking back in the wrong way at the wrong things can be devastating. Especially when you're running a race. Now, I haven't run a real race in a long time. Look at me. No. Okay, I broke my ankle last year walking. So, I haven't run a physical race in a long time. But I remember, and I know, and I remember it was like doing some downhills with some guys on, on uh, mountain bikes and competing. And I remember this. It was a huge mistake to take your eyes off of what lies ahead and look back. <laughs> it was a huge mistake. And that's what has some of you tripped up. Let me say, I say this tenderly to you. Reflecting on your past sins, your most profound sins, your most profound failures of judgment, your lack of wisdom, reflecting on those, your grievous errors, pain you cause someone you love, dwelling on those things will suck all the spiritual joy and energy out of your soul. And you will find it very difficult take steps forward to keep pressing on. And we all have them, don't we? We have plenty behind us, don't we? And sometimes it's just a word. Sometimes I'll hear a word somebody says in a sentence, they didn't mean anything to me, they weren't talking to me, and that word brings back something. Something from the past. Paul had plenty that could have just smothered him in his past. Here was the apostle. He consented to the killing of the first martyr of the church. He consented to the murder of Stephen, a Christian. And then he went on this tirade to, to incarcerate other Christians. You imagine him meeting the, a child or a descendant of one of those people he put in prison? Hi, Paul, you imprisoned my folks. But he had plenty to look back on that was, was awful. He pursued, persecuted. It's interesting when you look up at, uh, uh, if you would, at verse 6, he says, as to zeal, what was he? He goes, a persecutor of the church. That's the same root verb, root, root word uh, that's translated below, press, I press on. But when you see it in the original language, Paul is saying, I used to, I used to follow after, press after people to arrest them, and now I press after Christ. <laughs> that, that kind of highlights the, the, the complete turnaround in his life. And so I'm sure that was a blot in his conscience. That was a blot in his, in his memory, with this terrible, dark stain of what he did. But Paul learned not to dwell on it in the wrong way. Again, it's not like he forgot it ever happened. He learned to see it in the, through the lens, through the prism of the gospel. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here's how Paul thinks of his past now in this light. 
First Timothy chapter, chapter 1, verse 13, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a, a persecutor, an, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. You can say that when you think about your past sins. Listen, I received mercy <laughs> because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, that is, in the, in the condition of unbelief. And the grace, he says, of our Lord overflowed for me. It flooded me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, he says. He goes on to say, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So no, he didn't forget every detail of the past. But he learned to look at his past through the lens of the prism of the gospel and not dwell on things in such a way that they would somehow hinder his walk with Christ. And I want to say to you this morning, especially those of you that tend to go there in your minds about your past sins, and some of us have those sort of haunting footsteps, that what's, what's true about Paul is true about you and your sins. You were flooded with mercy and grace. You were given faith and the love of Christ. Learn to see it that way. Learn to perceive it that way. You are forgiven of all your past sins in Christ, even those since you became a Christian. Not only those that you exercised during your time of unbelief, but even those as a Christian. We sing a song before the throne of God above, and this verse stands out in light of this today. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. He's an accuser. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him. Pardon me. When God looks at you, Christian, he sees you in the robes of Christ's righteousness. He sees you dressed with his righteous life and his atonement, his payment for your sin. Isaiah, the prophet, made this Memorable, beautiful statement. Some of you who wrestle with this, maybe you should memorize this. This is part of pressing on. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. If he has laid hold of you, he has dealt with your sins and he has adorned you as with jewels. And those jewels are what? An alien righteousness, not yours, but the righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you have to exercise a, a selective amnesia. And you have to think about your past sins and failures in the right light. And the problem that many a Christian I meet is they remember how they failed God. Or how someone failed them. Maybe even a Christian hurt them. Dwelling on either of those will become an entanglement it will become a weight 
and it will hinder your capacity to run after Christ, to press on after Him. Allow the Lord to change the way that you view your past sins and those sins committed against you. You pray to Him. You ask Him, Lord, free me. Let me, let me leave the past in the past and only look to the past for that which propels me forward. Help me, Lord. Teach me. Give me the right perspective. You pray that. And believe it or not, here's something else. Believe it or not, God can and wants, listen carefully, and I say this with, with tenderness, God can and wants to even use your sins and your worst sufferings in order to grow you and grow others. Yeah. Even others through you. It's been said this way. Follow carefully. One's misery often becomes one's ministry. One's misery often becomes one's ministry. The greatest compassion I've seen shared to homeless people or addicts or those who once were homeless and addicts. The most tender words shared at uh, these clinics, pro-life clinics that we support with women who have gone through abortions are from women who have gone through abortion. The greatest comfort that we receive from pains, sufferings, grief, loss, comes from those, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, who have been comforted by God in that same experience so that they can now comfort you with the comfort that they received during their time. And the greatest help that I received and I receive in the pastorate has almost always come from older, more gray-haired pastors who can speak into my situation. Could you believe this, that your misery could actually be your ministry? Possible. If you have a selective amnesia. <laughs> if you know how to look back and think correctly. Two more features, and that is not only a holy discontent and a selective amnesia, but a singular focus. Paul says, one thing I do, verse 13, the one thing I do, we looked at the first part of the couplet, forgetting what lies behind, and the next one is the, is the second half, straining forward. Straining forward. This is the one thing he does. He forgets the past. He doesn't dwell on the past. That will, that will slow him down. But he strains forward. He has a singular focus in his life. And the word there, to strain, means to stretch a muscle to its very limit. <laughs> this picture here, I think Paul has that athletic picture again. Uh, perhaps he had been at these games, it seems like he has, of a runner who's running, he or she's coming to that very end, and their, their muscles are taut, they're, they're covered with sweat, and they're stretching out, they're straining to come to the end, you see. And Paul says, that's how I view my, my Christian life in the sense that I don't want to become stagnant. The only choice is to press on and to strain forward, to exert myself. And so resist, beloved, resist the temptation again to think that enough's enough. You've read enough, you've prayed enough, you've learned enough, you've done enough, you've heard enough. Don't be satisfied with yesterday's grace. Lean into it. Lean forward and finish well. That's the goal for all, all of us. That's became Sherry and I's um, theme in our break was coming back to this question 
in discussion alone, what's it mean for us to finish well? What's it going to mean for us to finish well? It doesn't mean we do the, the things we've always done the same way because you just, you know, the deterioration of the body and the mind is inevitable to some degree. And it's not going backwards. And so what will it mean for us to finish well? That was our topic. That was our prayers. What's it mean to take care of mom now that dad's gone? What's it mean to be grandparents? What's it mean to to move forward, to finish this calling well, to press on for Christ as a couple? That's what Paul's saying, you know. And people who succeed at athletes, the very best athletes, have that kind of singular focus, don't they? That's what, that, what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 9. He says they, they practice all sorts of self-control, right? That's what they do. They, they, try, they do all they can to stay in the zone, <laughs> to always be ready, to not let up. And this means of avoiding becoming a double-minded person. James, the Lord's brother, says, he warned, a double-minded person is unstable in all his ways. What's that look like? It looks like this. He's here, he's not here. She's here, she's not here. They're in, they're out. They're here, they're there. Come and go, up and down. Unstable. It's a dangerous place to be in the Christian life. So Paul says, one thing I do, keep that singular focus. Most of the time it's either we have too many things going on in our lives, we have too many distractions, and they just consume us. Or we haven't learned to do the things God has called us to do, our jobs, our schooling, our relationships, and whatever, to do them in such a way that they don't, they don't, uh, again, pull us away from pursuing Christ, that they don't become a problem in our pursuit of Christ. That's, and that's, 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 the, that's the problem in many of us. We haven't learned to participate in life's events or callings and in such a way that they don't diminish our appetite for Jesus but help us to, to press on. Now, on one level, maybe this sounds a bit radical to some of you and you're sitting there thinking what's he going to say next we're all supposed to sell everything and move somewhere and what, what is it with this guy today you know no this is a mindset this is a mindset you say it's learning to think and view life whatever whatever god's given you how he's gifted you what your callings are it's just a mindset an outlook here's the point maintain this perspective and what is it the first half we learn from colossians 3 here's the here's the perspective whatever it is i am doing the object is always the same to bring glory to god <laughs> colossians 3 whatever you do do it all in the name of the lord jesus and the second half, whatever it is I am doing, the object is always the same, to bring the glory, glory to God and to come to know Him more and become more like Him. That's the dual focus. See, that's the perspective that can be maintained in your education and your relationships and your business and your work and your art and whatever it is that you do. It's... So it's not this sort of radical calling to a specific thing. It's, it's that, you know. Did you know that athletes still eat and drink water? Yeah. And they rest, right? They are just picky about what they eat and how they rest and how much they drink. And they do all things in a way to maximize their capacity to compete but they still breathe. <laughs> they still go to bed. They still eat meals. They still drink, you see. And so that's this calling to us, to maintain this singular objective of straining forward, forgetting the past. And then lastly, the last quality, again, is the right motive, a gospel motivation 
to do this. Look, would you please, at verse 12. I want to show you something there. Look down at verse 12. Not that I have already obtained or have already received or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Here's the phrase, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. See, there's the motivation. Now, I know not all translations are, are the same here, so I'll point it out, because, in fact, the New American Standard, the New King James, and the NIV don't translate it that way. Maybe you remember it in, in Old King James as you grew up that, that uh, you're trying to, where, where it says uh, something to the effect that I want to uh, make it my own um, as Christ has made me his own, or something to that effect. But when you, when you look at the grammar here, and I was very careful. I went back to my old notes when I went through this and looking back, uh, studying this. Um, the, new, the New Revised Standard Version and the ESV here version, I think, have this correct because this particular construction, I won't go into it, and I, you read Art and Gingrich, some of the best lexicons and so forth. This particular construction is almost always causal. The cause. And so I think the New Revised Standard and the ESV have it correct here when they say, because. So Paul says, here's why I press on. This is why I reach for Christ, because Christ reached for me. <laughs> this is why I grasp after Christ, because he grasped me, you see. That's his motivation. There's not an ounce there, beloved, of legalistic motivation. There's not an ounce there of pure guilt motivation. There's not an ounce there of pride. Look at me. Look what I'm doing. There's none of that there. He, Paul was not striving to be loved, not striving to be adopted, not striving to belong, not striving to be forgiven or justified. He was all those things, and he knew it. And that all the more made him strive. The Apostle John puts it in his own way to paraphrase John. Uh, we love him because he first loved us. So Paul's motivated through the lens of the gospel. He has a grace-empowered motivation. 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ compels or impels us. And so I want to say this morning, this afternoon now, that this needs to be settled. This needs to be settled right now for every one of you in this room. This has to be settled at the beginning. What do I mean? You can't run the race if you're not in the race. That's what I mean. You can't run the race if you're not in the race. You can't press after Christ if Christ has never pressed after you. You can't lay hold of Christ if he's not laid hold of you, you see. And that's what Paul is talking about. Some people never press. Some people listen to what we're talking about or, 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 or invite people to participate and there's like not an ounce of movement moving forward, no emotion, no nothing. Why? Because there is no life. Matthew Henry was right. Wherever there's true grace, there is a desire for more grace, you see. You're a new creation if you're a Christian. It's the possession of a life. And so, don't listen glibly today. Are you in the race? Have you ever desired to press after knowing Christ? If there's any doubt in your mind, you... Call out to him right now. Lord, forgive me. Give me grace. Open my eyes. May he do so. And you'll have the right motivation to press after Christ, to seek after him. Because he first sought after you. And you know it. So, beloved... We're going to have lunch, and we're going to go to a meeting, right? And we're going to talk about the need to corporately press after him. That there's no standing still in the Christian life. Like the little frog I saw in the window in rainy Costa Rica. 
And even with his suction feet, <laughs> when he wasn't moving up the window, he was sliding down. Because <laughs> the torrent was so strong. Have you become a cynic? Have you become a cynic? Church life, fellowship, Bible study, serving, all that to you is just, yeah, whatever. Like that really matters, like they really care, like I really care. Your mind is constantly filled with your judgments at what happens around here. You upset about the way things aren't done, the way you wish they were done. A lot of that happened these last two years. You sit in there looking at me thinking, yeah, well, he should have said this or he should have said that. Is that you? Anywhere here? You? Anywhere? I tremble. I tremble when I start becoming a cynic. And I say, oh, Lord, don't let me go there. Don't let me go there. Let not a man think more highly of himself than he ought, says Paul. Have this perspective. John Newton wrote it. You've heard me quote it before. John Newton said, I'm not what I ought to be. There's that holy discontent. I'm not what I ought to be. Could you quote that with me? Can you say that out loud with your own mouth? I'm not what I ought to be. Then he says, I'm not what I want to be. But he wants to. He wants to. Then he says, I'm not what I hope to be in another world. Power of the resurrection. But still, I'm not what I once used to be. And then he says, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's the perspective to keep. The exhortation to you today is verse 15. Think maturely. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And there's a clever play on the words there in the original language because mature is the same root word as the word perfect. And so Paul is co-opting this, their word. Their word was perfect. I'm perfect. And he co-opts their word. He says, I'm not perfect, but let those who are, quote, perfect think this way. What way? You're not perfect. <laughs> the mature person is the one who knows that he or she is not mature enough and can, can see themselves through the lens of the gospel. Don't be discouraged. Press on. Let's us press on together with a holy ambition, a uh, selective amnesia, a singular focus in gospel motivation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.